The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Reverend Dr. Jacqueline J. Lewis, is a public theologian and the senior minister at the Progressive Multicultural Middle Collegiate Church in Manhattan. Reverend Lewis is the first woman and the first black person to serve in that position at Collegiate College in its almost 400-year history. Her new book is Fierce Love, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Reverend Dr. Jacqueline J. Lewis, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. I'm so glad to be with you, Robbie. Thank you for this conversation. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to it is at the heart of your book is your understanding of Ubuntu. Now, I understand that mostly because of your book, but also because I've read stuff from Desmond Tutu. It's a Zulu phrase that you render, this is a quote, I am who I am because we are who we are, close quote. And then you write about it and you say, by channeling the ancient wisdom of Ubuntu, we can engineer a badly needed love revolution to rise up out of the ashes of our current reality. So I really want to go into this carefully because it's probably a concept that most of us haven't heard of, and I, and I really want to have you share it with us. So first of all, how do you understand what you're calling our current reality? Hmm. Thank you, Rami. I'm a wired, wired optimist. I, I'm always thinking about what's good about the world and what's good about my life and what we can do about it. But even my own, you know, kind of positive orientation is feeling really pressed right now. And my right now would be the last, you know, 10, 15 years, especially of just the way the politic on the national stage, the rancor in our processes, the, frankly, the stacking of court that is supposed to be the supreme arbiter of justice, Rami, feels like we're going to roll back human rights and civil rights over the last decades. I mean, decades of struggle and stress and marching and sacrifice rolled back because there are worldviews in conflict in the United States. Yes, around the globe, but let's be local for a minute. Will we be loving, kind, generous? Will everyone have enough? Will no matter who you love and how you work and how you make a living, be acceptable in terms of your neighbor saying, that's your business, do you? Will our children thrive? Will, will the water be clean? Will Mother Earth survive? That, that's that's one, one vision. And the other vision is religion becomes a tool of oppression 
it is mostly Christianity and whiteness and maleness that will rule the nation. There will only be a few billionaires and some of us will be so poor. We have to work three jobs to make ends meet. And even then we're below the poverty line. We don't like black people. We don't like Asian people. We don't like Jews or Muslim people. We don't like strangers. We don't like indigenous people. That's another worldview. And they are at war. They are clashing. And I'm saying that's a hot mess. What do we want to be? Do we want to live out the promise of our democracy? And for people like you and I, Rami, our faith practice? Or do we want to devolve into a xenophobic, caustic, toxic, violent place in which only a few of us can make it? That is the question. It I is. Think the answer is we're into devolving. Yes. <laughs> I'm not happy about it, but it it seems that that's happening. I mean, we've already basically gutted voting rights. We're about to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're undermining, you know, maybe some people don't think it went anywhere near far enough, but whatever whatever progressive, even if it's in quotes, whatever progressive policies we had, we seem to be rolling them all back. For the so-called good old days, which were not good for too many of us. For, for probably most of us. I mean... You know, y'all. When we, when I, when I watch reruns, which I rarely do, but I do, of you know Mayberry and in, in the Andy Griffith Show, and I mean that's what we want to roll it back to. And there, there were no black people in Mayberry, and there are no Jews in Mayberry, and women, you know, had their their place mostly in the kitchen or sometimes teaching at school. That world maybe worked for Andy, worked a lot less for Barney. <laughs> and even less for Gomer. So it, it, but people don't seem to remember it that way. At least they, they can say, but we were the, the elite in, in Mayberry, you know? And, and it's, it's very frightening to think that that's the direction we're going to go. I think that's, I think it is frightening to me, Rami. And so I write this book, you know, I write this book as a call to action. I write this book as my deepest felt a conviction that though we are devolving and though we are in a class war, an ideological war, a caste war, we can change it around because we have done this. It is true that there have been incredible seasons of oppression and devolution and violence that have been followed by good people of moral courage standing up and saying, mm, no, we're just actually not going to let this be the way we live. And we're going to work for human rights. We're going to have the Civil Rights Act of 1875. How many people really know that, that the Civil War was followed by uh, legislation to, to make Black folks free and able to vote? And then, of course, because systems don't like to change, we end up with Reconstruction and the deconstruction of Reconstruction, which is really Jim Crow and really violent racism and lynching of not only Black folks, but Jewish folks and all the white folks who worked for justice. But then we have a movement called the Civil Rights Movement or the Southern Freedom Movement in which good people came together to change the world. And I think what we saw last year, Rami, was Ubuntu. I want to get back to describing that, that we saw in the wake of you know, the COVID debacle, we saw people joining together to, to create inoculations, 
that could heal us and also to distribute them and share them. We saw scientists and doctors work with faith leaders and teachers and community leaders and parents to really make a difference. And though we lost 700,000 people, we have made a big dent in this in this pandemic. We saw the horrible, persistent anti-Black racism and violence lead to the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd murdered before our eyes. And what happened? All across the globe, not just here in the United States, people were outraged and said, no, we value his life. We value Black lives. Young white people marching with Black older people, with Indigenous people, with Asian people who showed up even in the face of anti-Asian violence because of, you know, who's crazy language. Ubuntu means I am who I am because we are who we are. I'm not a Zulu speaker, Rami, but it's Umuntu, Ngubuntu, Ngubantu, which literally means a human is a human through other humans. There's no single word for human in that Zulu language. So I am connected to you, Rami. When your children are hungry, my stomach should growl. When your seniors don't have health care, I'm worried. When you're, when the child in Michigan doesn't have clean water to drink, I'm called to make sure that that child does because that child's humanity is inextricably connected to my own. And that is what happened in this last year around the movement for Black lives. It became, I mean, Amazon sold out on all the anti-racist books. I'm not saying we got perfect, but I'm saying people got activated. And I have hope that our humanity can call us into fixing the world together. Now, that's the interesting thing, Jackie, is that you have hope. You know, this could have been, I mean, not with the title that you've got, you know, Fierce Love, but if you don't think about the title for a second, this could have been an angry book. Yes. But it's not. And I'm wondering if it's Ubuntu that that keeps you from getting angry and that that keeps you on the path of hope. It it certainly does. It certainly does. Um, how did you come how did you find it? Yeah. Yeah. I I found it working on a, a doctoral dissertation, a, a PhD dissertation on leaders in multiracial churches. No kidding. I found it in the book The Fifth Principle First, <laughs> okay, where they were studying what what works in communities. You know, why why do Asian communities have a different kind of evaluation system than, you know, say Western Western culture? How how do people work together and see success? as a shared objective. And so I was fascinated by it and did some study about it. But then I went to South Africa a few times and the most compelling stories were the ones that kind of rise up out of Mandela, for example, um, you know, being incarcerated for 28 years and really coming to understand the humanity of his captors and and saying people, people are not born hating. He didn't believe that those white Afrikaners who, who, though a minority, took over his Black nation. He didn't think they were born that way. He thought they had been taught to hate, and that if they were taught to hate, they could be taught to love. And in our traditions, Rami, the call to love neighbor 
the call to love the stranger in your tradition is is prolific in our scriptures. So the second thread of of hope comes from the, the, the reality that I've actually seen people love their neighbors as themselves, love their neighbors fiercely, to wade into the waters in Katrina and rescue people despite the risk to their own health, right? To, to go to the border with, with limited funds and in the, in the danger of COVID and still work for justice at the border and immigration to, to pull people out of the buildings that were falling down in 9-11, those first responders, those are just some examples of the everyday ways that human beings love each other, love each other. And I find hope in you know, my own story, the, the way that a Canadian woman saved me when I had a car accident. And she just you know, rescued me by taking me to get food and getting, helping me to get a rental car and paying for a hotel. She didn't have to do that. I was a Black stranger in a white Canadian context, but she did. The, the key is Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or let's come to America and let's think, about, let's think about Linda Sarsour, who is a Palestinian Muslim activist who makes a lot of people angry as she tells the truth from her perspective. And then Rabbi Sharon Browse, who is a, a Zionist, a rabbi in, in, in California, who would say she's a Zionist. And these two women, they're not best friends, but they have worked together and respected each other and spoken together. I think that kind of love is fierce. Yeah. And that's that. Maybe he just give us a little more of a definition on your notion of fierce love? Well, you know, fierce love is not for the weak. It is demanding. It is heart-stretching. It's the kind of love that made Dr. King go to Memphis in the midst of the changing dynamic around him and actually walk into a death sentence. But it's also the kind of love that made a priest named Jonathan jump in front of a young woman named Ruby Sales and save her life in a Southern context where a white man wanted to shoot her and kill her. I'm not saying we're all going to take gunfire for each other, but fierce love recognizes that my self-interest and your self-interest are the same. Therefore, how I vote, how I spend my money, where I live, all of these decisions happen, Rami, because you matter. I can't, I don't get to participate in anti-Semitism when I'm colleagues with the rabbis. I don't get to participate in gay bashing when I, when I know that, that, that God's love extends to queer people as well. And, you know, my child might turn out to be queer. There has to be empathy and fierce love there has to be a demonstrated commitment to stand up for what is just and what is right in our personal relationships. Fierce love forgives the teenager, you know, who we want to whack, but instead we think I'm, I'm responsible to make a container for this child to become an adult. In our in our personal romantic relationships, fierce love dares to keep trying past hurt feelings. 
and and in our world, fierce love sees circumstances that are immoral and confronts them with moral courage. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Now, that's that's very clear and very powerful. You mentioned, you know, being queer, you, mean, you know, brought up homosexuality. You have a part of the book in which you talk about it. And you make an interesting observation that Leviticus 18.22, which says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman, is just one of a number of commands in the book of Leviticus. Things like kosher, not uh, wearing clothing that has linen and flax in it together. I mean, so many different rules. But this is the one that many, many Christians focus on. Why? Oh my God. Why? Why? <laughs> why that is one? That, why, I, why? 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 Okay, if you're going to do that one, why not also do you know? Don't eat pork products. Exactly. Why that one? Because it's about sex. Can you just say it right? Because it's about sex, and because sex is about life and about power. And I think that the church, God bless us, has really wanted to control life and sex and gender. It's frightening to think about being out of control, I think, for some of those church people. And it's just so fraught. I'm glad you picked that up because, you know, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat a cheeseburger, okay, and nick some dairy and some beef or some shrimp cocktail or some barbecue ribs while you're talking about God's queer people going to hell because they're an abomination. All kinds of things are called abominations in the Leviticus text. And what happens, to, in my point of view, Rami, is there's not enough study, there's not enough inquiry, there's not a, enough of a kind of rigorous hermeneutic or, or listening to different kinds of theological voices. And so some clergy are literally repeating what they've heard from clergy, what they've heard, and they don't even know the context for these texts. And what happens? You end up with Matthew Shepard against a fence with, you know, with bricks thrown at him. You end up with queer people put out of churches and not finding a place to love God or, or, or a synagogue or mosque, and you end up with those same texts lead us to places of gender violence because we somehow think women are the weaker sex or foolishly, you know, Eve taught, you know, taught Adam how to sin, right? All of those kinds of reads of scripture that lead to death and violence and hatred, I think we have to be suspicious of them and we have to reread them. Yeah, absolutely. But let me just share a story from, from my time as an academic where I used to teach, when I used to teach the Bible, both uh, the Hebrew and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And I know, I don't know Greek. I mean, even if I said I knew a little already, I'm making too big a claim. So <laughs> when we would deal with the New Testament, one of the things I would do is I would bring in uh, a New Testament scholar who knew the Greek. Mm -hmm. And we would look at hot button issues specifically, or, or the one that I knew was going to catch everybody was the notion of, of homosexuality, not yeah. just in Leviticus, but what's said about it, or at least what we imagine is being said about it 
in the New Testament, Paul's comments. And the professor that I brought in as a guest explained to the students, showed them the Greek, talked about the Greek and said, these words do not mean homosexuality. And he, they talked, you know, he explained to them what they really meant and, and it, was, yeah. it could mean all kinds of different sexual practices, but it wasn't singling that thing out. And the kids said, you're wrong. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't listen to an expert because the mm -hmm. expert said something they had not been trained to yes. accept. That's right. and, and I think that is the problem. It's not just that people aren't exposed to these things. They're so resistant. I mean, religion has become really a source of fear yes. more than, than love. And right. people are so afraid of looking at these texts. I, I mean, not to drag the point out, but this morning I got an email from someone who was quoting a teacher on a program that she was at, who, like you a moment ago, mentioned Eve. So this, this woman was talking about Eve and she said Eve was a hungry woman with bad timing. Oh my goodness. And, really? <laughs> you know, and I mean, I've written extensively about the Adam and Eve saga and in the Hebrew Bible, you can't tell from the English, but in the Hebrew Bible, the only person exiled from the garden for eating from the tree of knowledge was Adam. Correct. All the language is male singular. Yep. And Eve I mean, there, there's punishment for the snake and Eve and Adam, but Eve is not kicked out of the garden. She shows up out of the garden, you know, in the next chapter, but she's not kicked out. The sin is, I mean, she didn't just eat as Adam did. She ate after analyzing that it was good to, you know, it, it would taste good, but she didn't eat it. And then it would look good, but she didn't take it. Only for wisdom was she willing to eat it and risk dying. This is a heroic story. This is I mean, she's like Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. Exactly. She's, That's right. That's and right. everything is just reimagined in such a negative, misogynistic way. That's right. And it's, it certainly is not unique to Christianity. Not at all. Um, but no. I think it's unique to patriarchy. I do think that's right. I do think that's right. And I think it's really brave and feminist for a man to say it's about patriarchy, uh, because I think it is. And what, what, I, what I really try to do in this book Rami, I mean, this is a nine-year journey to, to write this book. I had been thinking about why is religion so toxic and painful and hard? Why do I, who love God so much, serve a world in which God is used to punish and wound and maim and be the cause of war? And I was thinking, well, what needs to happen is that God needs to grow up, meaning our vision of God, our image of God. I'm a psychologist of religion, right? Our image of God needs to grow up. But I also didn't want it to just be about God. I mean, it is about God, but also the people in the nation who are not Christian, not Jewish, not Muslim, the ones who are not, you know, worshipers of a deity, just the folks who are loving nature or humanists or uh, Buddhists, or the, you know, all the people could find our way to religion being love, religion meaning to bind ourselves together. We could have faith in love, and then we could be thinking about opening doors to each other as opposed to shutting doors. We could be thinking about how to get healthy and well and strong and vital and how to thrive together. We could be not competitive. We could be not pitting, quote, one God against the other God, one God being, let's say, money, right, and the other God being power. We could actually rewire ourselves, I think, back to the way we were in that garden. Eve eats to have wisdom, and we have wisdom. 
we know what it's like to take care of each other, Rami. We know what's required. We just sometimes don't want to change our circumstances enough to make a world in which all of us can be healthy. You know, as a scholar of, of religion, as, as a, a pastor, you know, you're steeped in, in the Christian tradition, milieu, history, all of that. What's your sense, or let me, let me just put my cards on the table. I think it has to do with power. When yeah. a religion gains power, mm-hmm. especially political power, which means military power, right? then everything bad happens. You know, you've got this great line in the book, in the section called In the Name of Religion. I'm going to quote you to you. You write, <laughs> quote, I'm always a little startled by the church's denial about how long Christianity and white nationalism have danced together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and then you could go on to say, talk about your religion, Christianity, saying it's built on the life of a poor brown Jewish baby from Palestine. How did that get in, you know, twisted into a, and this is not true of all Christians, clearly, we're talking about a specific type, but that type get caught up for all their love of Jesus into a, well, I would say a fascistic, anti-Semitic and racist faith yeah. trapped in the madness of white nationalism. How did that happen, do you think? Oh, there was an emperor named Constantine who in the fourth century, when the Christianity movement was the way or the Jesus movement or a fledgling I don't know, Jewish community trying to reform itself in some kind of way, he sees a sign in the sky and thinks that he's supposed to make Christianity, the state religion of Rome. And it's on, right? By it's this on. sign, we will conquer. That's right. And then that's then it's over. Not fully over, but it is. But Christianity is empired. It is empired. I'm making that into a verb. And it is still empired. It is the, the it is the, it is the, the Pope who ends up saying, go ye therefore and take all the lands from all the heathens. You can have them. And suddenly we have a doctrine of discovery. And it is just so sad that we cannot, I'm, I'm committed to unempiring Christianity, Rami. Amen to that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I would say the same thing about Judaism, but then I would get in real trouble with, you know, with, you know, the same thing is happening in a sense in Israel, where, right. where Jews are in power and Jews have an army. And the same thing happens in Myanmar when Buddhists, of all people, were Buddhists, ended yeah. up turning on Muslims and in Muslim countries and, in, you know, in the Hindu nationalism under Prime Minister Modi. I mean, all these things have to do with power and how religion yes. gets corrupted by power. By power. And the way religion is going to get uncorrupted is by the power of love. And it is powerful. It is a powerful force. It, I've been to Israel many times it is it is the kind of force that makes those you know Palestinian and those Israeli soldiers work together to try to find a way to peace. It makes Palestinian parents and Jewish parents get together and mourn. It's the kind of power that ultimately dismantled apartheid in South Africa. That was love power, and it's the kind of power that is working to dismantle racism here in these United States. It's the kind of power that is really claiming Mother Earth as precious and vital and causing 
not just the so-called, and I'm saying so-called friends, I don't mean any harm, but it's not just the tree huggers who understand that we are in an environmental disaster that is only going to be healed with love. So I'm I'm going to stick with love. Dr. King would say I'm deciding to stick with love. Hate is too hard. I'm going to stick with love because I think it's the only, only hope, the only hope we have to save our planet and our people. Well, I, I think you're right. I don't know if I have the courage to do what you're doing, but uh, yeah, I don't see an alternative either. And so, so I mean, that, that's a great place to end, except I want to ask you to do something. That, your book sort of ends with an, an altar call, if I can call it that. Yes. And, <laughs> it, and it seems to build on what you just said. So what I'd like you to do, because I want people to hear this in your own voice, what I'd like you to do is to bring our conversation to a close by reading the final two paragraphs of your book. And, and that will be it. I, I, won't, I won't make a comment. You're going to bring the show to a close just by, by making this altar call from the end of the book. Rami, thank you for the generosity of this conversation. I'm so great, grateful to be here. Our pleasure. I say this in my closing two paragraphs of fierce love, a bold path to ferocious courage, and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Writing this book has been the stuff of my dreams. I wrote it to enlist you in a fierce love army. I want you to help me help our children. I want my grandchildren and my nieces and nephews to live in this world and be seen, known, and loved not feared. I want to leave them a safe and brave world in which they can play, walk, or jog in their neighborhood, drive, sleep in their beds, and protest without danger to their Black bodies. I want your children to grow up in a world where they can love whom they love, be who they are destined to be, practice any faith or no faith, and honor their calling to care for their global neighbors. I want our progeny to understand Ubuntu, to find a love in themselves, to grow it for their ever-widening posse, and to build a love movement in the world for all of us. I want to convert you, to convince you, to proselytize you. I want you to believe with me in our shared capacity to make a better life and a better world together. I hope you'll believe assiduously in love in the fiercest love of all. Our guest today, Reverend Dr. Jacqueline J. Lewis, is the author of Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule-Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World. You can learn more about her work at JackieJLewis.com. Jackie, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much, Rami. It's so good to be with you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcast.